From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. And this week, we are going to take a look under the hood of a couple of institutions, namely the Supreme Court, as we are in the midst of the confirmation for Amy Coney Barrett. We're also going to revisit some of what we talked about last week about some of the election legitimacy issues that could arise this November. And our guest for this is Rachel Sheldon, who is an associate professor of history here at Penn State and director of the Richard Civil War Era Center. And this is a time when people are thinking about the Civil War era. And as I think you'll hear when we consider the context of some of these institutions and take a look under that hood, it is helpful to have that historical perspective that I I think Rachel will bring to this discussion. I will say that I think one of the upsides of this administration (laughs) is that we are learning a lot about how our institutions work and we are learning some nitty gritty rules. So, for example, we know that the president is supposed to make a nomination for the Supreme Court and the Senate is supposed to confirm or not confirm that nominee. And I think what's really interesting and I think what we're seeing here is that the Senate and the House also have these internal rules that are not in the Constitution. They just can make them up about how they're going to decide what it is that they're going to do and what it is that they're not going to do. And we're seeing that kind of play out. I think the other thing that we're seeing play out is the extent to which norms, things that are not written down or codified in law, have gotten us a long way and how when they're not followed, things seem to feel like the poop is hitting the fan. (laughs) Yes. One of the things I think we've been reminded of many times about institutions is that rules are endogenous. And so whoever's in charge gets to make the rules. And we've talked about this quite a bit, actually, on the show in the context of election rules and the states and the way that the partisan breakdown of the states is going to determine a lot about whether or not they're using mail-in ballots or whether or not they're using voter ID laws or whatever the case may be. And what we're seeing here, of course, is that the Senate gets to decide if they're going to hear this nomination, just as they got to decide whether or not they weren't going to hear or take up the nomination of uh, Merrick Garland. That's where I think some of the historical perspective that Rachel brings comes into play. On the one hand, she argues that the court has always been political, particularly in the Civil War era and the the years leading up to and into to Reconstruction, which is her academic area of, of expertise. But the court has also become much more powerful, which is why mm-hmm. some of these kind of... Yes partisan machinations matter much more today than they have in other points in history. So I've been trying to go back and understand how the Supreme Court got its power. And one of the things I think that we also have to remember is that the Supreme Court has neither the power to allocate resources nor the power to enforce They are the least dangerous branch is what... uh, Ostensibly, right? I mean, they're only as dangerous as we allow them to be. So it will be really interesting, a word that I do not allow my students to use, 
to see the extent to which the public continues to view the court as legitimate and whether they will empower their representatives and executive to enforce what the Supreme Court says. That is not inevitable. It's just what we've been doing, but it's not what we've always done. Yes. Excellent point. Yeah. And and, and I mean, (laughs) not to mention whether or not the president of the United States will listen to what the court says. Exactly. Especially when we get into some of these election questions. But yes, you make an excellent point. And that's why legitimacy of the courts is considered to be so important. That why Roberts is widely seen as having made some of the decisions that he did because he takes so seriously the or he never actually says it. But so we sort of infer this onto him Mm -hmm. that he's doing this because he's concerned about the legitimacy of the courts. And so, as you say, they're dependent on public support and other branches. And those other branches are dependent on public support in order to be able to have what they what they say carried out. So, yeah, all of this sort of thing that I was talking about before with how the courts have become essentially kind of packed over the last few years, which is one way of thinking about court packing, may well reflect on its legitimacy, especially among parts of the population, because it's become so partisan. Yeah. So I I think it's just important to consider in this moment of norm breaking that nothing is inevitable. I think uh, Rachel touches on a lot of these issues we've been discussing and also thinks about how democracy plays in here. So I really enjoyed this conversation and I think you will too. So let's go now to the interview with Rachel Sheldon. Rachel Sheldon, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So you are a historian of what is sometimes described in the the academy as the long Civil War era. And that's, that's a period of time that I think a lot of people are thinking about and perhaps looking to these days uh, as we head into an election with the Supreme Court nomination uh, also in the mix. These are all things that you've been thinking and, and writing about over the past little while here. So excited to talk with you about some of those things. But before we dive into specifics, can you quickly kind of set the historical stage for us here? What period of time are we talking about when we say the long Civil War era? Sure. So the Long Civil War era is really the 1830s to about the 1890s. We think about it that way because the 1830s is really when we get an explosion of partisanship. Parties didn't really exist in the same way we think of them today at the founding. But in the 1830s, we get the rise of Andrew Jackson and uh, his second in command, Martin Van Buren, and they create the Democratic Party. And that sets off a period of intense partisanship and intense political participation. So you got voter turnout routinely over 70 percent of those who are eligible to vote. And you get that all the way up through the 1890s. So it's a period of intense partisanship, intense voting, really serious engagement with politics. And it's also a period in which there are tons of threats to what the people at the time thought of as democracy. Of course, it's not democracy from our perspective because women and Black people were not allowed to participate and in some cases, immigrants as well. 
But, you know, in the 1830s, we had been a generation or so removed from the founding generation. And folks started to wonder whether the possibility of democracy will continue on. They're constantly worried about it, in part because of repeated conflicts over slavery nullification crisis in 1833 in South Carolina, in which South Carolina threatens to leave the Union, all kinds of political controversies in the 1850s, and then, of course, the Civil War itself in the 1860s. And then even after the Civil War, continued conflicts between North and South and sometimes between East and West over various issues that seemed to threaten American democracy. So it's sort of the combination of those two things, the high voter participation and engagement and these repeated threats to democracy. Certainly lots from what you just described sounds very familiar to to where we are today. Maybe not quite as high voter turnout, though it, it still remains to be seen what turnout this fall will hold. But certainly the point about increased partisanship and polarization and some of the threats to democracy that we're also seeing play out in our current moments. But, you know, as we record this, we have a vacancy on the Supreme Court and Amy Coney Barrett has been uh, nominated to fill that vacancy left by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that process kicking off has sort of reignited a lot of conversations about the partisanship and the, the political nature of the court. You know, people saying that the, the court should be apolitical, jurisprudence should guide the day, not partisan politics. But as you alluded to just there and also in a, an op-ed recently in the Washington Post, the courts were part of this increased kind of uh, political nature of this long Civil War era period. So it's it's not like the courts have never, ever been political. So can you take us back in time again to that era? What does the Supreme Court look like during this time? Our vision of the Supreme Court today is sort of this high body that has the ultimate authority over the Constitution is not what existed in the 19th century. So we have to sort of reorient ourselves to understand what's going on. Today, almost all Americans believe that the Supreme Court has the ultimate authority to determine what the Constitution says. We sometimes call that judicial review, but it's really something more akin to judicial supremacy, uh, which is a word that political scientists use to talk about it. Judicial review is the idea that you can review these various constitutional measures, but supremacy says that the Supreme Court is the ultimate authority as opposed to, say, Congress or the people. In the 19th century, the people considered themselves to be the ultimate authority on the Constitution, and they would grant some of this power so that there could be different departments in the federal government who could interpret the Constitution, but the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches, but none of those had a supreme authority. Ultimately, the people did. Once you understand that about the court, you can start to think differently about what the court's purpose was. It certainly was to review the law, and it certainly was to issue opinions about things that were at the heart of various conflicts, but it was not this body that had to exist in such a way as to deliberate over American society, deliberate over what the Constitution meant. Instead, the Supreme Court justices in this period were creatures of partisanship. So each president would appoint a justice or would nominate a justice from their political party, typically from another political office, 
So it could be, say, Secretary of State, could be Attorney General, Secretary of the Treasury, or a governor, or a sitting senator. These were the kinds of people who ended up on the Supreme Court in the 19th century, especially in that early 1830s, 1840s period. And so these folks are not going to just leave their partisan predilections at home, nor do they have to, because they are not engaging in this sort of top-down explanation of what the Constitution meant, they have much more ability to operate in political networks. So in their day jobs, they go to the court, which actually sits in the basement of the U.S. Capitol during this period. They go down and conduct their business. And then afterwards, they would engage in all kinds of political networking and conversation. And they did this both in Washington and when they rode circuit, another totally bizarre thing to us uh, in the 21st century, they served concurrently as Supreme Court justices and judges on the federal circuit courts. Uh, There wasn't actually a separate federal circuit court. Uh, There was just a Supreme Court justice and a federal district judge who came together to hold an appeals court. So they would ride around inside their circuit and they would conduct these circuit court deliberations and then they would return to Washington. While they're on circuit, they're constantly engaging in all kinds of political activity as well. They're meeting with all kinds of politicians and learning about what's going on in the politics of the state. So that's really a completely different Supreme Court from what we expect today. It's interesting to hear you say that the people in that period saw themselves as kind of the ultimate authority over the Constitution. I'm wondering how that changed over time. Was it that the people abdicated that responsibility or did this notion of judicial supremacy kind of rise up and and take it from them? It's kind of a combination. You do have Congress repeatedly giving more and more authority to the Supreme Court. So especially after the Civil War and Reconstruction and then beyond, the court is all of a sudden given more authority over their docket. They're allowed to choose which cases they get. We call this certiorari today. And then also they get more jurisdiction over federal questions, and they have the ability to engage in determinations about things that they hadn't had in the past. This continues on into the early 20th century, where former President Taft joins the court and then behind the scenes pressures folks in Congress to give the court even more authority. And then, of course, the justices themselves are taking on more of a role in the Warren Court and the Burger Court, and you might say all the way up to today. So it's grown over time. I know you also touch in your piece on John Roberts, our current chief justice, who prides himself on being an institutionalist. So how does he see that or, you know, which kind of version of the, the court as an institution comes to mind for Roberts and how he thinks about it and, and how he runs the court today? Roberts is sort of the epitome of this new version of the court that suggests that it should not be partisan or political and then claims that it is not partisan or political. He famously called justices in his confirmation hearings in 2005 umpires calling balls and strikes. It's a little puzzling because, of course, umpires are not really (laughs) that good at being unbiased, but that's all right. That's what he's trying to suggest And this is an idea that has developed over time. So at the end of the 19th century, while the court is getting more and more power, it's also beginning to describe itself in apolitical ways. 
to say that we don't engage in politics, that we are above the political fray, that we only deal with the law, that the law is a science and that you can determine what the law is without politics getting involved. And there's some back and forth about that in the course of the 20th century. Most famously, I think, in the Warren Court during the civil rights movement, especially. But now, we almost universally as a society outside of academia think about the court as being outside of politics. Knowing that the people are not as central or don't have perhaps a strong a, a relationship or as, as strong of a, an, an authority or, you know, whatever you want to say over the Constitution as they did in previous eras, what, if anything, can we the people do? Do if we don't see, if we're not pleased with the direction that the courts are going, or is it possible that the people could take back some of what the court has gained over the past hundred years or so? That's a great question. I think there are a few things that can be done. First, we can stop pretending that justices do not have political predilections. I think it's become such a desire among Americans to have this sense that the, at least the court is outside politics, that it becomes a growing facade that members of the court have no political predilections or did not come from partisan groups. So that's the first thing. We can stop doing that. The second thing is that Congress can take back some of that power that it has given the courts over time. It can strip the court of various jurisdictions and take that power back. And that, I think, is promoted by a lot of political scientists who suggest that this is the best way to sort of keep public faith in the Supreme Court while actually changing what the court is able to do. And then the last thing, which I know is very popular among Democrats right now, is to think about court packing. I'm not in favor or opposed personally, but I think it is important to think about court packing through the perspective of how do we change our understanding of what the court is. And if we can think about the court in more political ways, then court packing looks more normal. It looks like more part of the standard understanding of what the court can be. It is influenced by partisan interests, just like it was in the 19th century, just like it was during Abraham Lincoln's time. The other thing that, that comes up a lot when thinking in the perception of, of Amy Coney Barrett is this notion of her as an originalist following in the tradition of Antonin Scalia. Was this notion of being an originalist, was that a thing on the courts of the Civil War era? Or, or how does this enter our lexicon when thinking about the court? Originalism is in the way that we understand it or the way that people talk about it today is totally foreign to the 19th century. Again, because the court did not have the kind of authority that we assume it did. <laughs> and so there were references to what the founders believed, but it wasn't any kind of universal theory of how the Constitution ought to be interpreted, in part because, again, the court is not interpreting the Constitution very often. The people are interpreting the Constitution. And because they're working through that in partisan ways, you end up with different interpretations of what certain founders meant. And the founders themselves didn't agree. Originalism today looks nothing like that. Actually, most originalists in the 21st century do not subscribe even to the question of whether the founders believed something. They subscribe to a different form of originalism that is about original public meaning, much more like a textualist. So it's a totally different concept. 
given that, is it possible for Amy Coney Barrett to be an originalist as a female, knowing that for a long part of our country's history, women were not fully enfranchised? That's a great question. And it sort of brings up how has originalism evolved in the 1970s and 80s, there was a version of originalism that did look to what the founding fathers said, right? That was sort of the first grouping of people who thought about the problem of originalism. And they would have made the argument, maybe, that it would have been hard <laughs> because the founders generally did not think of women as people who could participate fully in American society. But the second version of originalism, which Antonin Scalia was a very big part of, changed their interpretation of what originalism meant to say it was this original public meaning. And they divorced that from the history. They're hostile to the history of the period, what they do instead is interpret based on what they believe the definitions of each word in the text meant. So the way that they can deal with the issue of a woman on the court is to say, well, in dictionaries at the time, the word he did not always mean he. Sometimes it meant he and she. So if you understand it that way, then it's perfectly fine to have a woman on the Supreme Court because the original public meaning of the text in individual bites allows that to happen. Now, I think that's totally insane. The new originalism is incredibly hostile to history, incredibly hostile to what happened at the time. Not that we should always listen to the founding fathers or that I'm advocating another form of originalism, but the great historian Jonathan Gnapp at, at Stanford has shown just how outside of what anyone thought in the moment of the founding or in the many years after this version of originalism is, and again, how hostile it is to the history. We will uh, link to your Washington Post op-ed if listeners want to read your full thoughts on some of what we've been talking about here with the court. But I do want to move on and, and talk about the election of 1876 and the compromise of 1877. Last week on the show, we had Lawrence Douglas from Amherst College, who is the author of a book called Will He Go? about all the ways that this year's election could go off the rails in terms of contested elections and and differing results between state legislatures and governors and all, all types of scenarios. But one of the elections that he talks about a lot and is perhaps the clearest analog to some of what we might face today is the election of 1876. So can you walk us through, Rachel, why that election was so contested? And then we'll, we'll maybe circle back and talk about the compromise that came about as, as a result of that. Sure. And I have to say, I fully agree. I think the election of 1876 has a lot of parallels today and maybe more than we would like once the election actually happens. So you have the Republican nominee, Rutherford B. Hayes, and he's facing off against Samuel Tilden, the Democrat. And the election takes place as usual, but in the 19th century, it often took a while for states to count all the electoral votes. So on an individual state level, you have a lot of the votes in pretty quickly, but there are unclear results in Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana. 
And as a result, you end up with a bunch of lawyers, a bunch of lawyers hired by the Democrats and the Republicans going into those states and trying to help determine what the correct vote count would be in the context of all the politics of the state. So again, you have some elections in, say, South Carolina and Florida that determine who is going to count the votes when you had a Republican legislature before, and maybe you're going to have a Democratic legislature now, same with the governor, and they can prepare different versions of what the Electoral Commission or what Congress ought to read out. The people in Washington have two sets of electoral returns that they are trying to determine who's who. They have no real determination of what they're going to do because Congress has a Democratic House and a Republican Senate. It's all a total mess. (laughs) They are determined that they have to figure out how to get some sort of result when they are so deeply divided in this partisan way. And so they end up creating a federal electoral commission that includes senators, representatives, and five members of the Supreme Court. And this is a really interesting part about the Supreme Court and shows, again, how important partisanship was, is that the people that they selected to be on the court were partisan. So they selected two Democrats and two Republicans, and those four got to decide who the fifth person was. And in this case, they tried to pick someone who's sort of meant to be nonpartisan. And they originally want the fifth vote. This is a totally wild story. They originally want the fifth Supreme Court justice to be David Davis from Illinois, who is a sitting Supreme Court justice, had been associate justice appointed by Lincoln. But in the midst of all of these negotiations, it comes out that David Davis has been elected by the Illinois legislature to be the next senator from Illinois. And so he's not able to serve. He says he doesn't want to serve because he's been elected as a Democrat to the Senate and he's going to resign his seat on the Supreme Court to take his position in the Senate once the commission has gone through. Mm -hmm. And so they end up with another person who is a Republican, but has maybe some leanings toward Democrats. And in the end, they certify election results that allow Hayes to be elected. Democrats are furious. (laughs) They are threatening violence constantly. And then they end up in this conversation with Republicans to certify Hayes as the winner in response for pulling out the remaining federal troops in the South who had been there protecting especially Black voters during Reconstruction. Sorry, that was a very long answer. (laughs) No, no, that was actually very succinct, given that you just described a a whole lot of of very complicated things. And we did hear some of this last week from Lawrence as well. So thank you for uh, reminding us of that history. Lots of parallels here. How are you thinking about this election as you're, you know, reading about mail-in ballots and thinking about States like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan that all have Republican legislatures and Democratic governors. I'm not going to ask you to predict if it will happen (laughs) again, but how are you thinking about that period in relationship to some of what's happening today? I think we do have to be pretty nervous that we're going to end up with that same result of different electoral votes going to Congress, you know, two separate sets of electoral votes going, one that's from Democrats and one that's from Republicans. It seems like it's a very real possibility. The thing I always think about in relationship to the 1876 election is voter suppression. 
during the 2000 election, there were a lot of comparisons to the election of 1876. I believe there was a famous book called The Fraud of the Century that was about the election of 1876 that said, you know, Republicans stole the election because so many of them were in power during this time in these individual Southern states. But of course, Republicans might have won by huge margins in the election of 1876 if Black people had not been wildly disenfranchised in all of these places. There are all kinds of reports of vigilantes, the KKK especially, preventing Black people from getting to the polls. And, you know, we're in an era now where people claim a lot of voter fraud on one side, and there's no real evidence that that exists. But voter suppression is very real and could have a really big impact on the election in much the same way. Was there anything done after this election in the subsequent years to try to prevent the same thing from happening again? The real key is that people start to change their perception of how balloting ought to work. And by the late 1880s, early 1890s, people are starting to accept the Australian ballot, which is the ballot we have today, right, that states give with people's names actually on the ballot so that you can choose between as opposed to, say, having one jar for Abraham Lincoln and one jar for George B. McClellan in the 1864 election. So it's a totally advanced view of how elections ought to operate. So some of it is that. There were several proposals actually to eliminate the Electoral College. That happened quite a bit in the 1870s. There was a famous Senator Oliver Morton who pushed it repeatedly, wanted to get rid of the Electoral College. So there are all kinds of pushes to try to change the system. But the balloting is the really big one. Tell me more about this jar thing. (laughs) Yeah, so in the 19th century, you didn't vote like you did today. You went to a polling place. It was often very often in a bar. And you brought with you usually a ticket that you had cut out of the newspaper for the political party that you wanted to vote for. And you would go to the polling place and you would wait in line to drop off your ticket into a jar for your side. Sometimes those were visible and sometimes they were not. Uh, And sometimes you would be waiting in line and you would get pushed out of line by shoulder hitters who didn't want you to vote. Or you would get a ballot for the other party given to you with maybe a few cents which at that time was really important to people. So you would get bribed. So the voting experience was just totally different from what it is today. Oh, that's so interesting. We could do do a whole other episode, I'm sure, on how the the kind of mechanism of of voting has changed over the years. Rachel, as we start to bring things to a close here, the other thing that we, we hear a lot, I feel like every couple of days I see some take or another about are we in a new civil war? The Atlantic, I believe it was earlier this year, if not the end of last year, devoted a, a whole issue to this topic and Some folks say we're already in a silent civil war in that we're not fighting in different armies in the the streets, but the state of our discourse is such that we can't really have meaningful dialogue. And so taking all of these things together, what are some kind of useful ways, do you think, for people to evaluate these claims, you know, weighing how much on the one hand, this might just be a strategy to get attention and, you know, have something thought provoking to read versus perceiving what the real threats might be. You know, how can we think about the actual civil war era as we're parsing it against where we are today? 
It's a good question and it's a hard one because the 19th century was so different in many ways. But one thing I will say about it is that I think sometimes we are so frustrated by partisanship that we give partisanship the ownership over the conflict as opposed to our own feelings about the country. Because partisanship was super high in the 19th century and there was a civil war, but the civil war actually comes in part because the white South gives up partisanship in most of the states that end up seceding. They end up a one-party state. And so you, you might say that partisanship is healthy for democracy, and political scientists and historians can disagree or agree about that. I don't know. <laughs> but I always hesitate to blame partisanship because I think partisanship can be a healthy part of democracy. One thing that concerns me is the degree to which a lot of people have lost faith in democracy. And in the 19th century, the fights over whether the union would survive were really serious because it never had survived before, right? Folks looked out into the world and said, when did a democracy survive before? Lincoln is obsessed with this idea. The last best hope of earth is what he calls American democracy. And so the concern that I would have is that people are less committed to the democratic system than they might have been even in the 19th century. Now, of course, we know that the states that seceded in 1861 were effectively rejecting democracy. But the real concern of most Americans in this period was how are we going to let our system of government survive? I wanted to add one other thing about the 1876 election that I think is also really important to keep in mind, which is that although there were many Democrats at that time who were threatening violence, Tilden himself specifically said no violence. He was opposed to violent takeovers. He was opposed to any kind of suggestion that the election would be illegitimate. And that's a huge difference from today. When you have the agreement among presidential candidates that violence is not the answer in 1876, and today we have a totally different circumstance. Indeed. (laughs) Well, Rachel, thank you for all of your work in this area. And thank you for joining us today to talk about it. Thanks for having me. Well, I learned a lot from that interview. The historian's approach to looking at uh, the Supreme Court is somewhat different than political scientists who tend to be much more behavioral and focused on how individual decisions are made at particular times. And so Mm -hmm. I, I took quite a bit out of that. I especially enjoyed her discussion on on originalism. Candace, what do you think about this originalism and textualism and how we should be thinking about them? First, I should say that when we learn that Barrett was going to be the nominee and that she identifies as an originalist, I tweeted, can a woman who is also a judge be an originalist? (laughs) To which the response was, Great question. <laughs> so I think that Wait, I'm not gotta, the only one get who that has question. question. You have to get that question to the Democrats on the committee. There's like a spectrum that we can think through of what did they intend at that moment to, I think textualism is a kind of originalism. What were the words meant by in that time? For me, as a Black woman, I have a major issue with this notion of originalism. As a judicial philosophy, I understand that 
We want to have a kind of sense that the Constitution should provide a kind of foundational principles, but to, I think, center what the founders or the people who wrote the Constitution meant or intended to shape the way that we think about things now is asinine (laughs) insofar as the founders were not demigods. They were not necessarily completely moral people who cared about women, who cared about people of color, who cared about poor people, who cared about all sorts of things. So I think that it's odd that a woman who was not by the founders ever conceived of as a full citizen person to then suggest that we should use the founders' intentions and words and meaning as the North Star to decide what we should do in this moment right now. I think that's partly why originalists, to kind of get away from that trap, which really does strike me as one that you really can't get out of, rely on this notion of textualism. So in other words, and I think the Heller case about uh, gun rights is an interesting one here. Rather than Scalia, who is the textualist of textualists on the Supreme Court, rather than digging into what the framers might have thought about what a militia was, he digs into the language at the time by using dictionaries about what the word militia meant. I'm not sure I understand why that's so much different, though. Yeah, I think it's a difference in degree, not in kind. And I think that Rachel, as a historian, would be probably a better person to make judgments on Mm -hmm. the extent to which originalist readings are rooted in history. I mean, she says that it's hostile to history. So I believe her. Maybe we should kind of segue into that a little Mm -hmm. bit, too, because I I have to say that was a really, to me, that was a really interesting part of what... (laughs) I don't Mm -hmm. want to say interesting. That was something about Rachel's talk that taught me something I didn't really know uh, very much about before. And that was the extent to which justices in that long Civil War era were so entrenched in partisan networks. Mm -hmm. You know, it reminds me of Clarence Thomas, you just mentioned, too, is is deeply integrated into certain sorts of Republican Party networks. His wife Mm -hmm. is a major conservative activist. And the other Republican judges are all, at this point, I think all of them come out of this Federalist Society, which is also very closely networked with the Republican Party. And so you really are starting to see something, at least on that side, that's very similar. The Democratic side's a little bit more, a little bit vaguer and more ambiguous, I think. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think that we have mostly just been gaslighting ourselves about the influence of partisan politics and ideology in the Supreme Court. Why we've chosen to do that, I don't know, but... I have an idea about that. Oh, let's hear it. I think what's happened is that as the rest of American politics has become more polarized, Mm -hmm. the court too has become more polarized. Mm -hmm. And that for many Americans, there's still this sort of romantic day when Democrats and Republicans at the Capitol sat down to lunch together and worked out problems and Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan had some bourbon together and were able to make decisions. So many people remember, for example, a David Souter appointment by a Republican president who turns out to vote with Democrats a lot of the time and doesn't vote with them on other times. And the court's not like that anymore. 
The court has become more polarized in its decision. We know that. We know there are more 5-4 decisions. Well, now there'll be 6-3. But we know there are more decisions of Democratic-appointed judges voting with Democrat, voting together, and Republican-appointed judges voting together. So empirically, we have become more polarized. They weren't always that way in the 20th century. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I appreciate it about Rachel's interview is that she highlights the fact that it was not necessarily intended for the court to be understood as apolitical or nonpartisan, but that is instead a characterization that they have wanted to develop over the years. And so they, for example, the what is it? What's the saving the nine? What's that? Yeah, I was just thinking of the switch What's in that nine. That's the thing? switch in time that saved nine. Right. So you know, right, it's an really effort to, to yeah, is an effort to build a characterization of being apolitical, of yeah. being objective. And yeah. now, in some ways, it's quite clear that maybe that's not something that is as prized as it was in the past, and we're going back to where we started. Well, a switch in time to save nine really did change, I think, with the way many of the justices were approaching their decisions. And I think it had a lot to do with public opinion. The other thing that Rachel suggests is that the people just not give as much power to the Supreme Court, that they focus more on state level politics, that maybe there's a question of jurisdiction. And I think in some ways, polarization in the Congress gives more power to the Supreme Court. Yeah. I just want to kind of put a bow on it. Sort of the public understands that often what the Supreme Court is doing is making a decision on a law that's been passed by Congress, but then Congress can always go back and change it. Mm -hmm. And so that so long as they're doing it in a way that's consistent with what the court is considering constitutional, Mm -hmm. The court decision need not be the end of the process, Mm -hmm. but in a largely dysfunctional, highly polarized kind of Mm -hmm. system, then it often will end up being the final decision. Or that questions that should have been decided legislatively end up in the courts because the political branches or the, the elected branches are just unable to reach a decision. Yeah. I mean, and then I think the other thing just to say, and we've been talking about the Supreme Court And you mentioned this earlier, Michael, but there are other courts that exist in this country that have a lot of power. Especially over elections. And so just generally speaking, I think it's important that we note and notice that the Supreme Court is like the icing that, I don't know, the cherry on top of the cake. There are other courts that citizens have to go through in order to even get to the Supreme Court And we should be paying attention to all of the ways that these lower courts are being manipulated by politics, by money. That sounds like a good future show. Yeah. I don't know. I think we should just keep our eye out for that as well. All right. Thank you, uh, Jenna and Rachel, for a really interesting discussion. This has been Democracy Works. I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. 
Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.